0: A couple of weeks ago we uh, talked about had a sermon on the subject of hell and uh, some people asked me some questions about that so I thought I would expand on that and continue that lesson this morning and we'll return to our other subject a little bit later on because the subject of hell is one that is just no, no longer popular in Christianity and uh, we like to be told That we're all going to heaven. Everything is fine. I'm okay. You're okay. There's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons connected to our other sermons on how we got here as to why modern men simply don't want to hear anything about hell because it's, you know, it's a, it it brings people into judgment. Unfortunately, if I'm going to stand here before you from week to week and do what I believe my responsibility is as a gospel preacher, I have to, teach you the whole counsel of God as best I can from what is read. That doesn't make me special. That's just the fact of what it means to preach the gospel. And unfortunately for us human beings, hell is an important part of the gospel. I've come to realize as time goes by, we might come back to this and I mentioned it before, that when you look at this upside down world that we live in with so much uncertainty, so many awful things, so many bad things people do to each other, both on a scale of nations and of in, as individuals. Sins have been committed against you and others. And, and the fact that our law enforcement system simply cannot bring justice most of the time. O- only about 40% of murders are ever solved, I think. Something less than that. We like to think that they're all solved. It's much less even than 40 And that's a great improvement from the past because we have more methods now of discovering guilty people. And when you go look at you go look at other evil things that are done from child abuse to sexual abuse to to other kinds of murders and rapes, the percentage of people that are ever brought to human justice is pretty low. And then when they are brought to justice, the punishments they receive in our modern world dominated by progressive thinking are min- minimal and so victims are left to wonder what really... I'm just surprised that there's not more vigilante justice out there than there is. Just to tell you the truth. So it's a sad situation. And the truth is, it hasn't ever been a lot better than that. Even in the United States in the past, much less around the world. And go back to ancient times, and it was much worse. From the time of Cain and Abel, human beings have been doing bad things to each other. That doesn't even include some of the other things that happen with respect to nations of people. Now, when I said I said all that, without dragging it out, to say that hell is an important part of proper understanding of the universe, I personally take comfort in knowing that even though these wicked people will never be brought to justice on this earth by man, if they could be brought to justice, it probably still wouldn't be justice. Because we don't have the means of punishing somebody effectively as human beings. But God does. And I've told people before, don't take revenge. God is much better at settling scores and taking vengeance than you will ever be. So do not, the Bible is very clear, avenge not yourselves, beloved. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Well, what is that Vengeance. What does God mean when He repeatedly says, I will take vengeance on the evildoers (coughs) throughout the Bible? He means hell. That's what He means. Not, and and also, not include that. There may be other forms of vengeance that God takes because, uh, you know, it's in the, in in the Bible, doesn't it say what goes around comes around? Doesn't it say that somewhere? Well, it does. What you reap, you will sow. Okay. The Bible's very plain about that. What you reap, you will sow. And so there is some justice in things that happen on the earth even without the criminal justice system inter- intervening. But the doctrine of hell is an important one to show that God allows men to live on the earth. He allows things to play out according to his providence. and Even out of evil, some good may come. He is very patient and tolerant with men. He is infinitely, infinitely long-suffering. And therefore, he allows these things to go on But there's a day of reckoning coming. A day of reckoning is coming and that day will result in those who are wicked and oppose God being cast into hell. And the one who is the most prominent in speaking about these things very clearly is Jesus Christ himself. You will find most of the references about hell in the New Testament to be in red letters because Jesus Christ said them himself. So it's not a matter of some other apostle or preacher that you could dismiss or what I say that you have to deal with, you have to deal with what Jesus Christ himself said about the subject, whether you like it or not. And what that has, uh, we might touch on this as we go along here this morning, I'll not to make this too uh, too boring and detailed, but what it, what it has resulted in over time is a whole brand of doctrines that say hell really isn't what we think it is. There's no eternal punishment there is no, uh, no no gnashing of teeth or anything like that. Hell is just going out of existence. That someday, and, and the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that. Uh, other groups, I think the Mormons teach that. That hell is simply when you die, you just go out of existence, and that's all that it is. And even if you stay alive in in uh, Hades for a while at the final judgment day, God just erases you, deletes you from the hard drive of the universe. As a, And you're just gone. And that's what hell is. Don't believe that. Nor do I believe the other modern doctrine that progressives teach that hell is poverty on earth or bad living conditions, not having free medical care. This is hell on earth. That's how it's presented in modern university, you know, in modern theological studies. This is what's presented as hell, bad living conditions on the earth. This is hell. I don't believe that the Bible teaches that either. That's not what hell is. Hell is something much different and worse. Let's go to some of the words of Jesus and take a look at that. Turn over. I know you can't see these. but In Matthew 18, I think we read these verses a couple weeks ago. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 8. Jesus here is talking about sin, which is another modern concept that receives no understanding from people and is rejected. But you Christians ought to believe in sin. It's imperative that you believe in sin or else there simply isn't any point in being a Christian unless you believe in sin. But sin's an unpleasant subject. It's personal. It comes back to each of us being being sinners against God in our life. And we need redemption from that. That's what the blood of Christ is for. But he says, Jesus says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Now the debate is that literal or figurative I'm not even going to get into that this morning because that will not, that'll muddy the point I'm making with you. He said it's better for you to enter into life, meaning in the next life, lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. He implies here that you're going to, your body's going to be cast into the everlasting fire or something like a body. You can say what it means. If your eye causes you to sin, Pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. There's the title of my sermon, You Can't See It, Hellfire. That's another good one. Put up there hell bent a couple weeks ago, and people went, you know, and now if I put up hell fire, you would get uh, your eyes would pop out. You know, in Mark 9, in the same context. Over in Mark 9, chapter 43, Jesus says the same thing about if your eye or hand offends you or cause you to sin, pluck it out or cut it, cut it off. He says, he talks about this place to be you'll be cast into hell, he says in Mark 9, verse 46, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The worm does not die, their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Then he talks about Plucking out your eyes. And then he says where he repeats it again. Three times in this passage, he says where the, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that if you take it in a literal sense, It's a place like the dump outside Jerusalem and probably the dumps down here between here and West Palm Beach, you know where they have the eternal flames going? It's not because they buried some important president on those hillsides. It's because all that gas from all that trash rotting underground is coming up through those pipes and they're burning it off. All that I think it's methane. They're burning it off so it doesn't make any more pollution in that way. And you see this eternal flame going along the the turnpike here in West Paul. And this is common all around the country. Well, this was outside Jerusalem, down there in the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. That's the word for hell in the Bible, Gehenna. You have this eternal flame of stuff burning because of all the rottenness and the gas burning. And it's filled with maggots and other worms of all kinds that are there uh, in this place. And they talks about that. This worm doesn't die, and this fire never goes out. This was the picture Jesus used of a real place outside Jerusalem to talk about hell, Gehenna. Now the question is: Is that literally where he's going to take you and throw you in the judgment day, after, in the, after the judgment day? Personally, I think that this, the fire, is real, but it's not a literal fire, and the worm is real; it's not just imaginary but it is a not a literal worm because we're not talking about physical bodies per se and so forth. And it's difficult to have a place of eternal darkness and fire at the same time in some literal sense, although some have tried to explain that. It, it, the explanations they give are not satisfying to me. But I, I do think he is talking about something that is in symbolic form, which is also real, like a fire. Just because something is symbolic doesn't mean it's not real. It just means it stands for something else that's real. So a symbol stands for something else. It shows you something about it. It's an analogy or a figure of speech. It doesn't mean that it's just imaginary. And People get that idea. Of, well, it's just figurative, so it's imaginary. No, that's not what figurative means. Figurative means it's something that explains something that is real. So there is a type of fire that he's talking about here. There is a type of worm that doesn't die. In hell that eats you up and yet you're not eaten up that torments you and yet you doesn't go away it's eternal now we have to meditate upon meditate upon what that might be and we'll come back to those ideas in just a moment there are three pictures of hell so Jesus lays this out in the Gospels on several occasions of speaking about this hell and talks about the gnashing of teeth and weeping and wailing and the worm not dying and fire and torment Jesus is the one who talks about that, and and he presents three pictures that I want to look at this morning, uh, hopefully briefly enough to to help you and yet not overtax it. He gives you the picture of eternal torment. He gives you the picture of utter isolation and outer darkness. And then Jesus gives you a picture of personal disintegration or destruction that goes with hell. All three of those things are what hell is about, not just one of those because they are all, they're all ways to describe the same situation. Now, I will be brief and tell you up front, I believe that this is the situation that results from you being irrevocably and eternally separated from God himself. Oh, we talk about people today whose lives separate them from God. Even the Bible says you separated from God. But I don't think people living on the earth today are separated from God in the way that they're going to be in hell. We can't even come close to that kind of separation because God's very clear. He is a merciful God who sends his reign on the just and the unjust. On this earth, the wickedest person that's ever lived enjoyed God's blessings on this earth while he was alive. He just didn't recognize them perhaps. We take them for granted, the fact that we enjoy light and comfort and safety and all these other things. We think we're having a bad day if our coffee's a little bit too cold because we take God's blessings so much for granted every day. Now, there are many of you, perhaps, some of you. Don't get me wrong. Some of you have suffered deprivation that I don't, I know nothing about. You, you have suffered physical pain and maladies and sh- uh, other forms of of things that hurt. You've suffered shame and isolation and loneliness, maybe personal rejection by people that you know. You, you may have suffered these things. Even in those states, those are hints of what hell is like. Those are hints of what it's like to be without God. You still enjoyed the blessings of God on this earth. I... You know, I can say that, we have to think about what that means, but these are pictures of what it's like to be cast aside. I'll go back to the famous quotation by C.S. Lewis, which I think is extremely helpful, and I don't have it here before you, but essentially it is this, that hell is not God, I'll paraphrase, hell is not God actively trying to induce some kind of torture on somebody, you know, like we would try to torture an animal or something like that in our cruelty. This is not what hell is. Hell, as he says, is simply God eventually giving each man what he wants. So is heaven. Those who seek after righteousness, Paul says in Galatians, who seek after goodness and righteousness will eventually attain it, and they will reap what they have sown. Those who seek after their own flesh, their own appetites, their own will, they will reap destruction and the evils that go with that. And so when you wave your finger, wag your finger at God and tell him, leave me alone, I'm going to do what I want, eventually God's going to leave you alone and let you do what you want. He's going to withdraw himself away from you, which will place you over there in outer darkness, and you'll have nothing. Then you can do what you want. But you don't realize, today when you say, I'm going to do what I want, you're like, what was that friend of Judy, you had a teenager, a teenage friend who, uh, she was, Independent, very independent. Always bragging you about how independent she was and free to do whatever she wants. And of course, every time they went somewhere, she whipped out her father's credit card to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is how we think. Now that's a real illustration of the man who, in this world, who says, "I'm going to do what I want." You're paying for it all on your father's credit card. Because in hell, you'll find out that that desire that you have will not die because you have no way to fulfill it. When God withdraws all of his blessings, you'll have no way to fulfill any desire that you have. And the worm will never die. Let's move on to the other pictures here. The first one of these three was eternal torment. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 10, we can debate this, but uh, what the, that context is, but it says here the devil who deceived them, these the nations, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. What, salt burning sulfur is called brimstone, which is just unbelievably hot and painful to the touch. Ask me how I know. Who's cast into the lake of fire? My my I, my parents bought me a chemistry set when I was laid up sickness for okay, one yeah. year. And so I found out all kind of things from the chemistry set. It was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here's a picture at the end of things when God starts bringing things into order. The beast and and the false prophet and even eventually the dragon ends up there in these figures of speech in the book of Revelation. They're cast in. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever in this lake of fire and brimstone. Does that sound like you're just going to go out of existence? Well, I know one thing for clear from this verse. The devil is not going to just go out of existence in the end. He's wicked. He's going to be there, conscious, tormented in his suffering. Now, the word torment, we used to mean stop tormenting your brother, meaning stop picking on him and poking at him. The word torment is, Just means to be miserable and vexed and in pain. That's all it means. Doesn't mean somebody's having to torment you in this case. But that's where the beast is. And then it says in Revelation verse 14 that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Chapter 20 verse 14. This is the second death. And anyone, and here's what I have. For me, I can see it's beautiful. Some beautiful lime green. So you emphasize it so you can understand this. Here's the verse that I had emphasized. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Guess who else is going into the lake of fire? According to John the Apostle. Anyone not found written in the book of life. Which means there's some people that are. Jesus says, we're going to see there's many that go this way, the broad way. Only a few that are not, but that's who's there. Is your name written in the book of life? And if if it's so, how would you know that? Well, the Bible answers that question. We might come back to that. In Matthew 25, Jesus is picturing a judgment day. This is often called in commentaries, the judgment of the great white throne. You know, I, I don't know. It doesn't say that per se in the text, that that's the name of this judgment. And we can debate exactly, when. but it seems like it's all at the end because he pictures here, these people that had a chance to do good to him, and they didn't do it. They had to do good, had a chance to do good to other people. You know, bring them a cup of cold water, give them food when they're hungry, visit them when they're when they're in prison. He, he says they had a chance to do those things, but they didn't do them at all to their fellow man. And then he had others who, when they had a chance to do these things to other people, they did them to their fellow man. And Jesus says, when you did it to these other people, you were doing it to me. When you do what's good and right, merciful and just to your fellow man, God tells the Christian, tells all of us, "You're doing it to me." So think about that when you, before you decide, no, I don't think so. Think about that. Then he said to those, then he will say to those on the left hand, "Depart from me, you cursed." into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Here's that fire prepared for the devil and his angels we saw in Revelation. Depart from me, you cursed. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. And I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. Then in verse 46 of of Matthew 25, he says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to everlasting life. So Jesus here again is showing you. There are the two places that you can end up. One of them is everlasting punishment. That is fire, prayer for the devil. The other is life itself, true life. Then you have Matthew 13, earlier earlier in Jesus' ministry, where he's, he's trying to teach the people about uh, God's judgment. He gives the figure of, of the tares growing in the field along with the wheat. Tares are wheat, weeds that look like wheat, but they don't produce any fruit. And he tells us, he said, I'm going to send in my angels and him gather up all the tares and burn them in a fire. And he says, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, Matthew 13, verse 40, so it will be at the end of the age. And the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Now that's a sobering verse because it says that some of these folks are in his kingdom. He isn't talking about the secular wicked here who care nothing for God. These are people that have been pretending to be in the church. He's going to gather that all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. What's that mean? To practice lawlessness means to do whatever you want. There are plenty of church people today, I use that phrase in quotes, who are really doing whatever they want in the name of Jesus Christ. They are doing what they want they make it look good with a religious background and colors and robes. But in the end, they're doing what they want. This is lawlessness. Do they look at the Bible and say, this is what it says. We need to figure out how to do this the best we can. They don't. They go to a theological seminary, get some high sounding ideas. And in the end, they do what they want in the name of religion. It's sad. because, But Jesus says, I, you, you and I can't fix that problem on the earth here. And you and I who try to serve Christ in truth and sincerity, we're faced with dealing with the consequences of these kind of hypocrites that people see and they reject the Lord and they reject you because of all these hypocrites. Maybe I'm saying that as a preacher who gets thrown into the same lap with all, same batch with all the rest of them. You know what? When I tell people I'm a preacher today, the look that I get usually is, so you're the one making all that money off those old ladies. You're the one having sex with all the sisters and hiding it all. This is the look that you get because you tell somebody you're a preacher. Because why, why is that? Well, it's because that's what they've seen. That's what they think is going on. Is it going on? Yes, it is. Jesus says there's a place waiting for them. He says, "I will cast them into the furnace of fire, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, even from his kingdom. Wailing here is a cry of despair and vexation, and gnashing of teeth. It can it can mean in the Bible anger and." resentment you're, you're just so mad you're grit, grinding and gritting your teeth sometimes it's that way with pain i mean we know this is a fact because if we've watched the westerns where they give the guy you know a knife or something to bite on when they cut him open and get the bullet out which is a terrible medical practice by the way cutting you open to get the bullet out—is a terrible medical practice uh, they leave the bullet in when they can unless they have to take it out because it's terrible but anyway in the westerns you always got to cut that thing out as soon as you can and they stick a knife and you rise down on a with such pain, this is the gnashing of teeth. It can also mean anger and frustration. And I think hell involves all of that. That's what the gnashing of teeth is here. But Jesus himself says, this is what is waiting those, even among so-called Christians who practice lawlessness and do just whatever they want to do. It's a sobering thought for all of us to contemplate. In Mark 14, in verse 21, Jesus says to Judas and the other disciples here, preparing them for his own crucifixion. They ask, who is it that's going to betray you? How is it going to happen? He says, well, it's one of, one of you that dips and eats with me that's going to betray me. And he says, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. In other words, the prophets prophesied that I'd be put to death. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good or better for that man if he had never been born. Some versions say good, some versions say better, if he had never been born. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. People that teach, right in this kingdom hall over here, another place all around the town, they teach that hell is just going out of existence. It's just nothing. Nothingness. And that's what Buddhists teach. In the end, we become nothing. That's nirvana. It's a various form of that doctrine anyway. This verse says about Judas, his fate is going to be, and other verses say he's going to where he belongs, his fate is going to be worse than if he had never been born. How is going out of existence, which he wasn't in before, worse than if he'd never been born in the first place? Can't be true. This verse here, even by implication, tells you that to live, be born and live a life of disobedience and here betraying the Lord is something that, that you're going to have to co- pay consequences for and be better if you'd never been born than to, than to disobey the Lord like this. So right there in the hidden in the language, the word hell's not here, but the concept is here and it certainly isn't one of annihilation. We could go and talk about that for a long time. I won't bother, but hell is not annihilation. If only it were so, that would be something we could at least get a grip on. And many many uh, men have uh, foundered upon these rocks of teaching that hell is nothing. Uh, it, it is a serious matter. You, you know, to pretend like hell is nothing is to miss the whole point of these passages. Whatever you might say about it, let me tell you something. Hell is a place that Jesus is trying to tell you, you do everything you possibly can to avoid it, whatever it is because it's so bad so we can disagree about what the figures mean but in the end what they mean is it is a place that's very difficult to contemplate and it's something we should at all cost in fact hell is so bad that god sent his only son to die so you wouldn't have to go there that's the real knowledge you have about hell that it was so bad that god didn't want you to pay that price Your sin puts a price on you that you can't pay. You owe a debt that you cannot pay. The paying of the debt is destruction. It's being lost. It's it's going into this place away from God. You sinned against the creator of the universe who made you in his goodness, in his righteousness, and the only penalty for that is to be away from him. He cannot be in the presence of this. God knew that price was something he didn't want you to pay. He doesn't want anyone to pay that price. And so he sent his son to give you the chance to avoid paying that price. He let his son pay the price. So you can avoid this. And the gospel is about, the whole Bible is about what it takes to avoid the price of being lost. So don't let people convince you that hell is nothing. It doesn't make any difference. And and it's, uh, and it's take these figures of speech and whittle them away so that they are very soft and easygoing. That's not, you missed the whole point of the gospel. You know, uh, man, man was made to live forever in the, in the presence of God and enjoy his blessings. That's what God had in mind in the beginning. The man in the garden, he walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And he man was made to live in God's presence and enjoy all the blessings that God had provide him on this earth and then perhaps in his direct presence. And we enjoy some of this presence in the world that we live in. And even we Christians can share... Even in the deeper presence of Christ as Christians, we share something that the world can't, but we understand the deeper presence of God and Christ in our life, and we enjoy those blessings that come and shower upon us in brotherhood and goodness. What torment must it be then for body and for soul to be cut off completely from this, who is the source of all pleasure and goodness? This is the eternal torment or punishment, to be cut off from that, and have no way at all to make it right. We all like to think we've grown up in an age where if you don't like something, you can take it back, right? you don't like it, I can return it. You get through this life, and you realize the bargain you made isn't so good. There's no return department. It's just there, and that's a sobering thought. There's no going back. It's too late, too late. So the other, the second one, then we got to wrap this up. In utter isolation. We talked about this last week. Outer darkness. He says to them, "I say to you that many will come from east and west, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, but the sons of the kingdom, meaning the you, you Pharisees, will be cast out into the outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Jesus says it again. Or he sees this wedding guest, the picture Jesus presents in a parable, a man sees a wedding guest, a king does at a wedding feast without the proper garments on, which in this case would be the righteousness of Christ. And he says, take this man, bind him hand and foot so he cannot possibly escape or go anywhere else and cast him into the outer darkness or there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Matthew 22. So here's the joy in the house with the father, with the son at the banquet That the Father provides, that's heaven. That's partly the church even. Then heaven later. That's the feast of the bride and the bridegroom. You're there. Some people are on the outside looking in. They have some light from the windows. That's the people that enjoy God's blessings who aren't in the church. They're outside. And then he says eventually... Those not with the Father are cast into the outer darkness. There's no light at all. You're not even going to be able to see the light from the windows of heaven. You're not going to see it. It's done. Now this picture, to cut it, show You know, man was made not to live as an individual. Boy, this age we live in, we just love our individuality, and it's okay. We are the age of the individual. In fact, that's why people are... Tattooing themselves up and piercing their bodies and doing all that—they're they're trying to make an individual statement of individuality. They're they're putting colors all over themselves and they, they try to stand out and be an individual. We'll come back and talk about that in our other lessons. And the, but extreme individualism is not good or useful. It's really a sign of something else. What it's a sign of is is someone longing to be loved and a sign of communion. When I see someone who is scarred up, tatted up, pierced, freaky colors of hair. You, you know what I think? I think that person needs someone to love them. That they need to know that someone loves them, that they're valuable. They need to love a Christ what they need, and they probably don't have it. And so they're trying to let you be, let, be seen so someone will love them. But... What they seek there in doing that is individuality that drives other people away. But we were made to be with God. We were made to be with other human beings. What happens, though, is we live our life more and more to do our own will. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to let me be me. The more we live like that, the more isolated we become from other people. Did you notice that? When we live to ourself, it isolates us from other people either other groups or other individuals, more and more and more. Because the more our evil desires give in to that, we get more cut off. In the end, God takes those people who have lived to themselves, not only have they faced isolation on the earth oftentimes, and he casts them into outer darkness. Oh, there'll be others there. But did you notice that the rich man in the par- in the story of Jesus, not the parable, the story of, G- of The story of the rich man and Lazarus and Luke 16. That man is in torment. He's all alone. Are Anybody else there? Oh, the place is filled with other wicked people. But he's all alone in the darkness, even though there's others there. You see, this is is the position where modern man is coming to. There are coming to be more and more people here. We think we're all connected by the Internet. But we're all alone with more more and more and more loneliness. More and more people killing themselves. And there's more people than ever before. They have a thousand friends on Facebook and they kill themselves because they're lonely. No one loves them. You see the picture I'm painting? This is the outer darkness. This is just a a small taste of what's coming for people that only live to themselves, only want to do what they want to do. This is what's coming for them. It's a sad situation. And then the last thing we'll mention briefly is personal disintegration or destruction. This is the one where people think that, well, God's just going to make you disappear. No, being destroyed is not the same as disappearing or being annihilated. Enter in by the narrow gate, Jesus says. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and, uh, and narrow difficult the way that leads to life. And few there are that find it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. The word destroy there doesn't mean to annihilate. It means to bring to ruin. It means to ruin it. So it's completely Different than what it was. Its purpose is ruined. It can't be used anymore. I've had books get wet. Books I love get wet. And they're still the same paper and ink. But the soaking has ruined them. So that you can't even turn the pages. The purpose for which a book was created. The value that it serves. The joy that it gives. Is ruined. Because it's been destroyed. That's the idea here. Of this word. And when you look at it, you know Jesus uses this word for the the son that was uh, went out and had to serve in Luke, where the son had to go out, left his father, I should say, found himself in a pig pen trying to feed the pigs, had nothing. That boy is called a lost son. His father says, "My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost." And it's found. That word that's used for lost there is the same word that Jesus uses for destroy in hell. It means ruined. He was lost to me. His purpose as a son was completely destroyed. Everything about him that was good and right that was useful has been taken away in that pig pen. He needs to be but but he's been found by the God by the Lord, you see. So man was made to live forever in communion with God, with other human beings. And Jesus said he came to give abundant life, not just life, but abundant life that makes man live out his fullest as a human being. But those who choose to live without God in this world and live in disobedience, it, it will bring ruin to them. Their purpose is, and you see this in some people, they become so clouded by sin that they almost not only appear, but they, they can hardly act human anymore. Because there's there's hard... Sometimes you find there's very little to even have any communion because their life has been ruined on this earth. Their purposes have been shrouded in greed and selfishness and lust. Those people are hard to relate to as human beings. But then Jesus says, in the end, I'm going to take those people and just, they've ruined themselves. I'm going to destroy them more by cutting myself off from them. So those are the... Reasons why we need to save ourselves, as Peter says, from this crooked generation. I thank you for listening. I apologize for going over. And we spent so much time trying to get um, whatever it is up here, screen problems fixed, that I can't seem to fix at all. And I don't know Steve's number anymore. What's the number of the invitation song? 2323. All things are ready. We're going to sing this song now as an invitation for you to obey the gospel of Christ. Do what it takes to avoid this place. Come and be made clean and free by the gospel of Christ. You can get a new life. When you come, we'll we'll, we'll take your confession of repentance. which means I'm going to turn back uh, and your confession of belief in Christ. You believe he's the Savior. You're going to come and follow him. We'll baptize you into Christ this very morning and you can start a new life. Can we help you today? You come right down to the front. Let's stand and sing.